You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 30 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today's episode takes us into the disconnect between two periods of the Catholic Church, the time before 1965 and the post-conciliar or after Vatican II Catholic Church. Everyone in the Catholic Church, from Archbishop Lefebvre to Pope Francis, agrees something changed between these two periods, but there are vast differences between the two in how to explain the transition. Father Stephen Ruder will join us to explain a theory that gained a lot of traction under Pope Benedict, the hermeneutic of continuity. In short, the central question is, can both periods of the Catholic Church live in agreement? If you'd like to learn more about the series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous 29 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father Ruder. Welcome back to the SSPX Podcast and our next episode on the crisis in the church. Uh, welcome back, Father Ritter. How are you? I'm well. Good. How are you, Andrew? Doing well. Uh, uh, we are talking to you today, Father, about the hermeneutic of continuity. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we get started on that at all, I think we're going to need a dictionary. Uh, so can you help us with what the heck does hermeneutic of continuity mean even? What do those yes, words mean? That's where we need to start. So in order to understand this critical debate in the church regarding the proximate and sufficient cause for the current crisis and consequently the appropriate solution, we must understand what is meant by a a hermeneutic. And it comes from the Greek and quite simply means to interpret. So a hermeneutic is a useful key which is used to understand difficult documents. We say it's a key by which we understand the document, enter into the document, or a lens which we look through to properly understand the document. And so we see, for example, when we study sacred scripture, that we have to look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, because everything in the Old Testament pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're studying the Old Testament without having any notion of the New Testament or rejecting our Lord as Savior, we'll have a complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament. So it's the lens by which we look at a document to properly understand it. So hermeneutic is just this this concept of, of figuring something out through another means. So this is nothing controversial yeah. or bad in and of itself. This is this is a useful tool in many ways. Well, it's a good thing. It's, it's used in literature. It's used in the Bible. It's... It's used in philosophy even, so. Sure. So we are talking about the hermeneutic of continuity in terms of interpreting the church teachings uh, after the Second Vatican Council. That's that's how it's being used in, in this case. So you said yeah. that a hermeneutic is basically a key. Um, do yeah. we really need a key to understand what a council of the church says? Well, historically, no. Right. But what's very particular to Vatican II is that it was proclaimed to be a pastoral council, very accessible to the people, to help the people understand the Catholic faith and live the Catholic faith. But what actually followed Vatican II was an unprecedented loss of faith and a collapse in morality. So the hermeneutic of continuity will be introduced later to shift the blame from the council and to try to to cure some of the the abuses which are in the church at the time. 
So the hermeneutic of continuity, this isn't a, a document that the church put forward. So when we're saying hermeneutic of continuity, those three words together, this is not anything that the church has proclaimed. This isn't a, a book that someone wrote, although there probably are books about it. Um, this is a broad understanding. This is the term that is used so that we can understand uh, how the council can be seen in the light of tradition, essentially. Exactly. It's the lens by which we're supposed to see the council in light of tradition. And it developed slowly, and it was really a lot of precedent was given to it with Pope Benedict XVI, which we'll see later. Okay. So this was developed later. They, they meaning the council fathers, they did not see the need to have a hermeneutic of continuity or a hermeneutic uh, directly after the council? No, during the council and immediately after the council, both the archbishop, who was really leading the traditional movement, we can say after the council, and the progressivists all saw a causal link between the Second Vatican Council and the developments, the revolution, the crisis, which followed the Second Vatican Council. In fact, the archbishop, with prophetic insight, he rejected, we can say, the hermeneutic of continuity, even before it was proposed. He can say, or we, rather we can say, he accused the council. And I refer to the book, I Accuse the Council, which is made up of 12 official statements of the archbishop exposing the danger of the documents. He warned that the faithful would become confused, doubting the necessity of the church, the sacraments, the conversion of non-Catholics, and the necessity of authority. So the archbishop already at the time of the council pointed to the council and accused the council of containing these errors. And he was able to see ahead of time, maybe not in, in exact form, how these errors would play out, but he was able to see there are going to be problems with this. You are setting this ball into motion and it's going to happen. Yep. Yeah, he clearly saw that the council set the ball in motion. Thinking back to the very first episode we did, and I referenced this episode probably a hundred times, the very first episode we did with Father Robinson where we talked about, is there a crisis? And he went through all of the, uh, not Father Robinson, sorry, Father McFarland. Um, and he went through all of the problems that we're seeing in the church after the Second Vatican Council. And I, I asked Father McFarland, don't they see this? Don't, doesn't, the, the, doesn't the modern church see all these problems? They have to have known that there were these problems. So the, the progressives, the liberals in the church had to have seen these things happen, right? They say the best way to know the future is to create it. <laughs> um, so certainly the progressivists also saw the link between Vatican II and the post-conciliar reforms. And in fact, the radical post-conciliar changes were done, in fact, in the name of the council by the same people who drafted or approved the documents of the council. For example, we must lay aside the states in the spirit of the council. We must change the mass in the spirit of the council. And so they always invoked the council or spirit in order to produce radical changes in the life of the church. And in fact, immediately after the council, we can see that the ambiguities, which were already spoken about in previous podcasts, were very quickly weaponized for the sake of these radical changes. You said weaponized. So that, that seems to imply, or I'm putting words in your mouth, but are, are you implying that this ambiguity was weaponized? This was done intentionally? This was something that was subversive? 
yes, there's evidence, and we'll give you some quotations from council fathers or experts. There's evidence that this ambiguity was, in fact, intentional, so it could be weaponized. And the first quote which I'd like to, I'd like to give you is of Schillibach, Edward Schillibach, who was a ghostwriter for the Dutch bishops and an expert. And I quote, We have used ambiguous phrases during the council, and we know how we will interpret them. So we see a clear intent to, to have these ambiguous phrases and to interpret them as they did. And Karl Rahner, he also said the same thing when asked about interpreting the council. He stated, what is most important in the council is not the letter of the decree it promulgated. They must be translated into life and action by all of us. Its spirit its more advanced tendencies. This is what is the most important. So we see he also speaks about this intentional ambiguity. And he saw the council as a decisive break from the past. So here we have Rahner, who was very prominent at the council, seeing the council as a decisive break from the past and seeing the ambiguity as intentional. So this is, so we see it's, it's kind of a weird dichotomy when we're looking at this issue, Father. We, we, have, we have this de- definitive break, both on the mm-hmm. side of the, the progressives. The progressives will admit there is a break. And so we have to take these, mm-hmm. these documents and interpret them in a new way. Um, and then on the conservative side or the traditional side, there is this break. We have to stick with the past. So what is, what is the hermeneutic of continuity doing? Are they trying to bridge that gap? Because it seems like everyone's kind of in agreement. There's a break. Yes. People can clearly see there's something very different before and after the council. The progressivists rejoiced that there was this radical change in the life of the church. The traditionalists lamented this radical change in the life of the church. And yet, among those who prefer tradition or or see something wrong in the church at least, there are some which want to, we can say, save the council, stop the abuses, and therefore they propose this hermeneutical solution. And this was proposed most famously by Pope Benedict XVI, in his Christmas address of 2005, where he reflects on the state of the church and the church's relationship to Vatican II. And that's the key thing here, is what's the relationship between the post-conciliar church and Vatican II. And so Pope Benedict, giving this, this address, he spoke of a number of things, but then he, he wanted to reflect upon the council as the church was celebrating the 40-year anniversary of the conclusion of the council. And he does say, and he was there as an expert, that this memory of the conclusion of the council provokes questions. What has been the result of the, question, of the council? Was it well received? What was good? What was inadequate? What was mistaken? What remains still to be done? This is 40 years after the council. Right. And then he states, no one can deny that in vast areas of the church, the implementation of the council has been somewhat difficult. 
Why has the implementation of the council in a large part of the church been thus far difficult? So why has it been so difficult to implement the council? That's a question which the Pope asked 40 years after it closes. And unfortunately, or we can say fortunately, he sees a problem in the post-conciliar church. Unfortunately, he misdiagnoses the problem and proposes a false solution. In his mind, the reason for the crisis in the church is that there are two contrary dueling hermeneutics or keys in interpreting and implying the council, which came into conflict with each other immediately after the council. So the council was good. Immediately after the council, there's two different keys, two different lenses by which people look at the council. They're dueling with one another, and the crisis comes from these dueling hermeneutics or keys in understanding what the council really meant. So he's in his Christmas address of 2005, he's saying the council is fine. It's how you are applying it. It's how you're interpreting it. It's how we are how it's being interpreted. implementing yep. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these two different hermeneutics you're talking about, there's the hermeneutic of continuity. There's the hermeneutic of rupture. Yes. What do those yes. two mean or, or what's the relationship between the two? So the hermeneutic of rupture, which the Pope deplores, and the Pope says causes confusion and risk splitting the conciliar and post-conciliar church. Strong words to say that the conciliar and post-conciliar church are being split. Mm-hmm. And the hermeneutic of rupture is is in the Pope's, I'll summarize the Pope a bit here, but he sees ambiguity. He sees compromises in the documents but he still sees the documents as good. And he says what happened was after the council, there was a paraconciliar spirit, which somehow hijacked the true spirit of the council. And this paraconciliar spirit pushed for radical changes, which were not requested, not anticipated, not contained in the council itself. So Pope Benedict speaks of the spirit of the council, which does not come from the council. It comes from a a source outside of the council. And he says the spirit of the council is not good. But there's a he makes a distinction between the council and the spirit of the council. And he claims that this spirit of the council, which is responsible for the problems in the church, not the council, came from a foreign source. And he attributes it to the media, and some trends of modern theology. So his claim is that the paraconciliar spirit somehow hijacked the true spirit of the council. The council is not the cause of the current crisis, but the misapplication of the council is the cause of the crisis. Therefore, the solution is to properly and fully implement Vatican II. So he sees something wrong with the church, but his solution is to fully implement Vatican II. Thus, he misdiagnoses the problem and proposes a false solution. A question that would probably be better asked to His Holiness, um, and not to you, Father, because I'm preaching to the choir, I know. How do you implement a council that is entirely ambiguous? Well, not entirely, but mostly ambiguous. How, how could that be done? Well, Paul VI, you know, who, who proved the documents, when he was asked about problems in Lumen Gentium, he admitted that, yes, there are contradictions in this document. I agree there's contradictions. 
So then he just added a note at the end to try to clarify. So, the, I mean, the Pope who really was responsible was Paul VI, who, who saw contradictions in the documents, saw the ambiguities, and still promulgated the documents. And, of course, the Pope Benedict was there as, as Father Ratzinger. Right. But now I think what Pope Benedict is doing is just trying to save something which he helped create. It takes right. a lot of humility to, to look at your life work and say, ooh, this is a real problem. Right. So I, therefore, he tries to separate the spirit of the council and the council. That note that you referenced, Father, of, of Paul VI in, in Lumen Gentium, we talked about it just last week with Don Tranquilo of you know, okay. trying to understand uh, how collegiality could have been defined by Pope Pius XII so clearly in, what, 1958 when he was doing a, encyclicals to the Chinese bishops, and then, what, 1964, just six years later, Paul VI puts in this note that we have to interpret what Pius XII is saying. And I remember thinking when I was recording last week with, with Don Tranquilo, why, why do you need to interpret it? It's clear. There's, there's nothing to interpret. Yeah, in, a, in a doctrinal council or in an act of the magisterium, it should be very clear. There may be right. some discussion how it's applied, but it should be very clear. The idea that we have a pastoral council and nobody knows what it means, as we'll say later, is a clear sign of a revolution, not of a constructive, productive council. Exactly. Well, so I, I, I took us on a little bit of a sidebar there, Father. But so getting back to the spirit of the council versus the council, this is something we've heard in several of these episodes now. Um, we, but we can't really separate out the spirit of the council from the council itself. These two are very much intertwined. Exactly. That's our position. The facts demonstrate that the spirit of Vatican II came from Vatican II. We already saw that there was weaponized ambiguity. Everybody admits ambiguity, even if they don't admit the weaponized part. Right. There's ambiguity. These documents were produced by a council, unlike any other council in history. It was really a revolutionary event in the history of the church both in the way it was conducted and the documents it produced. And the documents flowed from really the spirit of the council right. and then produced the consequences. So you said revolutionary. This is this is a revolutionary event. You're saying this is a revolutionary council, and, and not just you, Father, but, but the position of, mm -hmm. of the society. Mm -hmm. This is basically like the French Revolution in the church. I mean, this is kind of the way that I see it. Um, yes. It was— and again, this is not a dogmatic council. This is a pastoral council. Is that correct? And that's actually part of the problem. And we'll go a few, go through a few things, which I'm sure um, have already been covered in previous podcasts. But just to, to summarize them here, exactly what you said is called as a pastoral council, not as a dogmatic council, which is already very odd. There's nothing more pastoral than teaching dogma with charity. So the idea that it's purely pastoral already is very odd. And then no dogmas would be defined, no errors condemned. Okay. But then after the council, it's treated like a super dogmatic council to which unconditional assent is required. So again, how revolutionary or odd to start the council and finish the council with the idea it's purely pastoral, it defines no dogmas, it condemns no errors, but if you don't accept it, you're no longer in the church, for example. So that's already, you know, very revolutionary. And another huge, you know, problem with the council, which shows it to be unlike any other council, is 
councils are called to deal with the problems of the time, even a doctrinal council, well, doctrine leads to pastoral activity because ideas have consequences. But here we are living in the 20th century, so during the council, the greatest error of the time, which profoundly affected the world, was Marxism, atheistic materialism, notably in the form of communism in East Europe and Russia. You have cardinals, bishops, priests, countless faithful being tortured, imprisoned, suffering for their faith in the Eastern Bloc. You have many bishops who asked for communism to be condemned, and there's no condemnation, no formal con- condemnation of communism because of an accord which they, they made with, with uh, Moscow. So again, how do you have a pastoral council and not even touch the most urgent pastoral question of the 20th century and allow Russia, therefore, to spread her errors throughout the world? So that's kind of on a practical level. And another element, which I know was already spoken about, but, but it shows the revolutionary aspect of the council, was the fact that all the good work was done by the preparatory commission, but then all of that is just tossed away, thrown out. And, uh, you know, the, the Rhine group fathers are all in place, ready to produce new documents, documents which reflect a new spirit, documents which will be weaponized to, to affect the post-conciliar changes. And that's why, as you mentioned, and it's a quote from Cardinal Swenens, you know, in fact, is that the, the um, Second Vatican Council was the 1789 of the church, the, the French Revolution in the church. And we know the French Revolution changed everything from, mm-hmm. from the days of the week, the calendar. Everything had to change because they're throwing off Christianity. But when you look at Vatican II as an event, you see, in fact, that it's, it's throwing off the Christian order, a revolution which was intended and conceived for its subversive value and which, as such, has caused many evils. So the Archbishop here shows two things, intended and conceived for its subversive value, which has caused many evils. That supports you know, these things we've been saying about its intentional and it's the cause of the post-conciliar crisis. And we can just look at our Lord for that. Our Lord tells us, you know, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and every evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. The fruits of the council are evil. We know in nature, we know from reason, that for every effect there's a proportionate cause. So how, we, we must look at the council and find this proportionate cause for the evil fruits which have flown from the council. And even if only a small percent of the documents are openly erroneous, there's a spirit which poisons the documents and makes the council give poisonous fruit. So this is, I mean, everyone is, everyone knows it. It's, it's kind of like that, that worst kept secret uh, in, in the history of the church. Everyone knows that there is this, there is this break, that there is this, this rupture. Um, and again, going back to our first episode, we, we are seeing the evils of this council and evil is not too strong of a word. Uh, we're seeing the evils that the council, maybe, and again, this whole history of the crisis, it didn't just start at Vatican II. It started many hundreds mm-hmm. of years beforehand, but Vatican II exactly. allowed these evils to flourish. Yeah, we would say it's the proximate cause of the current crisis. Mm-hmm. A lot of years um, in development and preparation for the council, both direct and indirect. 
but um, but it's the immediate sufficient cause of all the changes that we see. And the changes are enormous. Both the traditionalist and the progressivists speak about a pre-conciliar and post-conciliar church. So we, of course, can debate what that means, but there is a reality being expressed there, the pre-conciliar and post-conciliar. Things are profoundly different before and after the council. So, again, I not to belabor the point, but there's there are definitely mm-hmm. concrete examples of, of current evils that we owe directly to the council, right? Exactly. Yes. It's even confirmed, in fact, by Pope Francis, which I think is mm-hmm. important because people accuse the society of, of creating this, this idea there is no continuity in the council with tradition. So I'll give you this quotation of Pope Francis defending the Abu Dhabi Declaration on human fraternity and on the fact that God wills all religions. And I quote Pope Francis, There is one thing I would like to say. I openly reaffirm this. From the Catholic point of view, the document does not move one millimeter away from the Second Vatican Council. It, the council that is, it is even cited several times. The document was crafted in the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. Two things are important here. The Pope says that the document, the Abu Dhabi document, does not move one millimeter away from the Second Vatican Council. And then he says it was crafted in the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. So the Pope is saying that the spirit of Vatican II is Vatican II. Because the same Pope Francis does advocate for this hermeneutic of continuity, but we see in this one quotation that for Pope Francis, Vatican II and the spirit of Vatican II are the same, and the Abu Dhabi Declaration is contained in Vatican II. So we say in philosophy, contra factum non fit argumentum, against a fact you cannot argue, and it's clearly a fact that the Abu Dhabi Declaration, these abuses, are contained in embryo, but contained in Vatican II. So, the is there any way that we can we can agree with with progressives with with the conciliar church that, that that there's a proposed solution to interpret this document in the light of tradition to to help fix the problem? Because again, everyone knows that there is a problem. We just just not mm. just we violently disagree with with the means in which to 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 fix the problem so is there a way that we can agree anywhere here it's difficult if we agree there's a crisis that's already a good thing sure but the proposal from pope benedict the hermeneutic of continuity proposes some real difficulties the firstly is the documents carry with them the spirit of vatican ii so you can't just touch up a few documents when the documents carry the spirit of Vatican II. It's not just a few lines that are ambiguous, but the documents are ambiguous. So that's already a problem. You need to do violence to the documents to really understand them in the light of tradition because of the spirit they carry with them. But secondly, and I would say even even maybe more fundamentally, our objection to Pope Benedict's solution is what does he mean by interpret the documents in light of tradition? And we'll look at his own writings to see what he means by that. So Pope Benedict, in fact, is in continuity with John the 23rd and John Paul II on this. He quotes them on this. So there is continuity between John the 23rd, John Paul II, and Benedict the 16th on this question, this interpreting the council in light of tradition. 
and we quote him in the same address, it is clear that this commitment to expressing a specific truth in a new way demands a new thinking on this truth and a new and vital relationship with it. That on one side is the hermeneutic of continuity or reform that seeks to implement Vatican II in fidelity to sacred tradition. And some of this is a quotation from when John the Twenty-Third opened the council, this idea that we're going to look at the same truths, have a new relationship with them, and present them in a new way. But what does the Pope mean by a new and vital relationship with the truths of the faith? Right. And what does he mean by fidelity to sacred tradition? So we always have to examine the terms, because at times we'll use the same term as a modernist, but there's a different concept in our mind while using the same term. And so what does the Pope mean by a new and vital relationship with the truth? What does he mean by sacred tradition? We know that Pope Benedict follows the new theology of Maurice Blondel, Henry de Lubac, which is nothing more than a revitalized modernism. And the foundation of this new theology is a new definition of truth. Truth is the conformity of my mind to the needs of human life, to life as life develops. We also know that the same pope, the same popes, embrace the modernist notion of tradition. Tradition is not this, this deposit of faith which is being transmitted and unchangeable, transmitted unchangeably, but rather tradition for the modernists is the transmission of experience. And any changes can be made as long as they're transmitting this original experience of the early Christians. So Pope Benedict, and in fact, just developing John Paul II's idea of interpreting the council and like the tradition, had a false notion of tradition. Tradition is ever alive, ever changing, and must ever fit the needs of modern man. They want to change the unchangeable deposit of the faith by looking at the deposit of the faith through the lens of Vatican II, so that the deposit of the faith is now seen in a new way through the hermeneutic of Vatican II, which in fact is modern, is modern, is, is novel. So far from solving the problem, the hermeneutic of reform or continuity increases this confusion. How do we understand sacred tradition in light of the new theology, which is what they're in fact trying to do? It's it's staggering to me because they're 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 taking concepts that are very clear, very mm-hmm. in many time, many cases very concise, mm-hmm. and they're saying, "Well, you're looking at it all all wrong." How mm-hmm. how? Well, you have to look at it through this lens, through this lens of this ambiguity, and through. I, I had flashbacks to previous episodes we did on the new theology, and thank you for reminding me about this new definition that they had of tradition. That's true mm-hmm. when when. Pope Benedict XVI or Pope Francis is talking about tradition. They're not talking about tradition in the same way that you or I or most of our listeners understand tradition. It's a totally exactly. different word to them. Yeah, so it's when staggering. they say, we want you to understand the Vatican II in light of tradition, we have to ask them, well, what is tradition? What do you mean by that? And yeah, and what is truth? And what is truth? <laughs> so, all right, so... Could you give me an example then, Father, of how it is, how, how have they interpreted tradition in the light of modernism? How, how are they able to take a look at these, like I just said, very clear documents, very clear statements, very clear traditions, truths in this new light? 
Yes, we, we can look at the same address from Pope Benedict XVI, the Christmas address, and we quote him, the Second Vatican Council, recognizing and making its own an essential principle of the modern state with a decree on religious freedom, has recovered the deepest patrimony of the church. By doing so, she can be conscious of being in full harmony with the teaching of Jesus himself, as well as with the church of the martyrs of all time. So the Pope here is claiming something very incredible. He's claiming that religious liberty, as taught by Vatican II, belongs to the deposit of the faith, and that true reform is to go back to this religious liberty as taught by Christ, but nothing can be further from the truth, as has already been explained in many previous episodes. The notion of religious liberty taught by the council is, is opposed to the, to the perennial teaching of the church on religious liberty. It's, uh, the, the word that jumped out to me in that quote, Father, was, was recovered. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we've found this artifact and we are going to dust it off. And this, this is actually the truth. Thank you, Vatican II, because you yep. have found this, this uh, artifact of the faith that we have lost. And, you know, the, the silly church from the 1600s through the early 1900s just had no clue. But now we know. But the reason it's true is not because of some objective reason, but because it corresponds to the needs of modern man. Right. So it's subjective. And that's what's incredible. And so, and then the Pope even, so he says that religious liberty as taught by the council is this true reform. And then he goes so far as to claim that the martyrs of the first centuries died for this false religious liberty. And this is, of course, completely false. The martyrs died for the liberty to worship the true God as the true God wants to be worshipped. Nobody has the right to err or to worship God in a way in which God does not want to be worshipped. The early martyrs died for the liberty to worship God correctly, not for this notion of all religions are equal and we all have the natural right to follow our conscience regardless of any objective order outside of us. That's not why the martyrs died. They gave their lives for Jesus Christ, the rights of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Jesus Christ. So... Before we before we, we close here with with the final question about about trying to find a solution here, um, mm-hmm. so just to recap and make sure we we've got this all clear, hermeneutic of continuity, we we cannot mm-hmm. look back at the tradition of the church, according to our definition of what tradition is the the real definition of tradition, mm-hmm. we can't look back at the tradition of the church and reconcile it with the Second Vatican Council. In order to try to do that, like you said, you have to do violence to reason you have to do so many mental gymnastics that it makes your head hurt Mm -hmm. so the hermeneutic Mm -hmm. of continuity it's essentially dead in the water but it's a way for benedict the 16th and and many others to try to reason their way into saying that vatican ii is in conformity and truth really hasn't changed yes they're trying to save the council and they're trying to stop some abuses sure two things okay so then what is the solution? How do we get out of this? Because if we try to explain the Second Vatican Council in the light of tradition, it's just not going to work. I mean, the, people are trying exactly. it right now, but it's not working. Mm-hmm. So what's our solution? Yes, and whenever they try it, the the same crisis, the same problems come right back. Right. And ultimately, the solution has to come from the church, has to come from the hierarchy. 
So there's only so much that we can do. He says we need an act of humility from the highest levels of the church. And this humility must be accompanied by the courage to correct the errors. It means that those who are in positions of authority won't dare confess the failures of the council and the failures of the new liturgy. So that's something which is important. You know, there, you know we have to admit that there's problems. Mm-hmm. Or the hierarchy has to admit there's problems. And, the, and so the solution has to come from the hierarchy of the church. There's only so much we can do, but it's the hierarchy of the church which has to, has to solve this problem. Um, literally, mm-hmm. as we're recording this, there's the meeting of the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the big yeah. agenda items is this statement mm-hmm. on the Eucharist and whether or not, you know, uh, whether or not pro-abortion mm-hmm. candidates, and that's just one part of the statement, but whether or not pro-abortion candidates should be able to receive communion and so forth. And so many of these bishops are so scared, it seems, to put their name on a document proclaiming the exactly. holiness of the Eucharist. They're fearful. And I had some personal experiences talking to different priests in different dioceses. And um, one priest, when I spoke to him about the fact that these pro-abortion politicians are receiving communion, his response to me was, yes, I wish the cameras were not rolling when they got their first communions. And when I recounted this to another priest who's fairly traditional, I said, it's horrible that these priests, that's all they can say is they're sorry the cameras are rolling when these pro-abortionists get communion. And this priest recounted a story from his own life where he said, you know, I was about, I was, I saw, you know, Joseph Biden and, and Nancy Pelosi, I think, in line for communion. And I just prayed to my guardian angel that I could switch lines so I didn't have to give them communion because I didn't want to cause a scandal by refusing them. So we see how the notion of scandal has been totally flipped upside down. Mm-hmm. Now there's a scandal refusing communion to those unworthy rather than a scandal in having our Lord received sacrilegiously. Wow. So the church needs the church broke it. The church needs to fix it. It seems uh, honestly, it, it does seem a little hopeless at the moment, just because at the moment. Mm-hmm. Just because the church is literally canonizing the Second Vatican Council. The, mm-hmm. the popes who were exactly. in charge of the Second Vatican Council are all being canonized. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like that yeah. that humility is, is going to be coming anytime soon. Uh, but yeah. it, we, we, we know it will. We have confidence it will. I'm trying to have confidence mm-hmm. that it will. So, Father, what do we do in the yeah. meantime? Yes, we know the church is indefectible. Right. She's the bride of Christ, the suffering bride of Christ. And we do have to adore the mystery in the same way that St. John and Our Lady adore the mystery of Christ dying on the cross. Yeah. We need to adore this mystery, be faithful to the church at all costs, to meditate upon you know, our Lord on the cross and see it reflected in the church. But I think we can also meditate upon the fearless words of Archbishop Lefebvre, who again— he saw the council as the cause of this crisis at the very beginning. And, of course, his solution was to form holy priest because only the church can fix this problem. And it starts with priests, bishops, cardinals, popes. But I'll give a few words from the archbishop. And it's from his declaration in 1974. We hold fast with all of our heart and with all of our soul to Catholic Rome, guardian of the Catholic faith and of the traditions necessary to preserve this faith to eternal Rome, the mistress of wisdom and truth. We refuse, on the other hand, and have always refused to follow the the Rome 
of neo-modernist and neo-Protestant tendencies, which were clearly evident in the Second Vatican Council and after the Council in all of the reforms that issued from it. So the Archbishop here is saying the Council is a problem. The reforms came from the Council. We must be faithful to tradition, all the things handed down to us, and we must love and pray for the church. You know, if you have a mother who's sick, you don't stop loving her, you love her more and you pray for her. So we have a, a mother which is very, very sick, and because she's sick, countless souls are being lost. And so we need to pray to our Heavenly Mother, to Our Lady, to help Holy Mother of the Church. And that's why it's so important to pray for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, because all this is very tied to the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, where we know that that is the solution to the current crisis. Absolutely. Father, thank you. This was a fascinating discussion on on the Second Vatican Council and, and how we can try to lift ourselves out of it and pray that the church helps us. Because yes, we, exactly. You, we pray can't do sacrifice. It. I can't do it. You can't do yeah. it. But we can, we can uh, do our part and pray and sacrifice, like you said. So Thank you very much, Father. Look forward to having you back on uh, for another episode. I think we have another one with you coming up soon-ish. I don't. The schedule's right back there. I'm not sure when. Okay. I'm not sure when, but we'll talk to you then. Good. But thank you so much, Father. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 30 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Coming up next time, we're going to be joined by Father Paul Robinson to examine the work of Father Leonard Feeney. He plays a unique role in our study of the crisis in the church. We'll look at his views, why he did what he did, and what traditional Catholics can learn from Father Feeney's story. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.